Hello, friends, and welcome to the show. This episode of HR Oxygen is brought to you by Boss Builders University. If you're looking to train up your non-managers and individual contributors, please check out our newest offering, The Art of Being a Great Teammate. In this 12-month program, I'll be taking your employees through the program, which includes topics on communication, managing your boss, getting results without authority, customer service, problem-solving, decision-making, and much more. The sessions are virtual, running one hour each month, and I'll do it using our popular sketch and seminar, graphic art and storytelling format. No boring PowerPoints, stale stories, or outdated tools and techniques. The sessions are engaging and provide practical, tactical tools that can be used immediately after the sessions. You can either have your entire organization take the program, or if you have just a few folks, join one of our open enrollment cohorts that start every other month. For more information, visit us online at thebossbuilders.com. Our guest today is somebody who is a super interesting guy. He is considered the millennial who is trapped in a baby boomer body. Ira Wolf is a top 100 HR influencer. He's a top five future of work global thought leader. He's the chief Googleization author, best-selling author, work futurist, TEDx speaker, and podcast host. Guy knows his stuff. He was super interesting to talk up to. We spent our time focusing on the trends in business today. And it's interesting to take a look back and a look forward and see where we are today. This happens to be probably the longest episode I've ever recorded. It's about an hour and 25 minutes. So it's a good one to listen to if you got a long drive on the road. But it might be better to listen at your desk so you can take some notes. Great speaker. Great interview. I know you're going to enjoy it. So let's quit talking about the man. Let's talk to him. You know what time it is. Let's go ahead and make sure that seatbelt is buckled low and across your hips. Make sure the personal items tucked under the seat in front of you. Time for us to taxi to the runway. Should the cabin lose pressure, oxygen masks will drop from the overhead area. Please place the mask over your own mouth and nose before assisting others. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast, the show focused on the overworked, overwhelmed, and underappreciated HR professional. And now, here is the host of our show, the boss builder, Mac Monroe. Ira Wolf, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Mac. Pleasure to be here. It's an exciting year. <laughs> yes, it's a cold year. We're just talking about it, so we'll date stamp us. We are in the first day of February right now, and it's uh, looking like it's going to be a few more months of cold, but nice and warm, I hope, where you are. And the topic today is the future of work. So right now, and again, going to date stamp our, our podcast, there's nothing but uncertainty. Every time it seems like we are just about ready to get over the top of this mountain, there's another one standing in front of us. And it's not just COVID and it's not just the divisiveness. It's also the future of work. And that's the perspective that we want to hear about today. You've had a very distinguished career doing a lot of things, which means you have a lot of credibility. And I think we need to find out from folks like you, based on your experience, what are the things that we need to think about as we try to navigate whatever the future is going to be? So I've got a bunch of questions for you. But before we get to those, Ira, I was hoping you could share your journey with us because it's a very interesting and distinguished journey. So tell us about yourself and how you got to where you are today. 
Yeah, thanks so much. And I appreciate the distinguished part. Sometimes it doesn't seem that way <laughs> along the way, which is how we live today. I, and, and before we jump into that, I just want to share with everybody, and this is what we'd be talking about. I mean, the world, I, there's an acronym for it. I didn't create this. It came from Warren Bennis in the 1980s, and then the, the uh, U.S. military adopted it. But it's called VUCA, V-U-C-A. And it, stand, and it represents, it stands for Volatile, Uncertain, Complex, and Ambiguous. And I don't know a better acronym to describe our lives, well, actually over the last 20 years, but especially over the last two years, um, than Volatile, Uncertain, Complex, and Ambiguous. And, and, you know, we'll cut to the chase. I mean, that's going to be the future of work. That's going to be a future of our lives, but the future of work will, will be surrounded of how do we learn to th grow and thrive and be productive and not be completely burnt out and stressed out uh, during VUCA. But going back to the career, uh, somewhere along the lines, I, I, this is the topic of my TED Talk. Uh, the title was called Make Change Work For You. Uh, recorded that about five years ago. And we talked about VUCA in there, but it was about how I've danced with change. Uh, I actually have a slide and I was holding a, a mannequin and I was dancing with change uh, throughout that career. Uh, my first career, uh, I was a dentist. Uh, I practiced for almost 20 years uh, or actually 18 years. Uh, and I loved everything about dentistry, but, but dentistry. I loved the business. I liked the entrepreneurship. I liked building the teams. I liked the leadership. I liked being part of the community. I liked working with people. I liked influencing people to have a better life and take care of themselves. I loved all that part. But at the end of the day, I had to literally go, you know, drill, as they said, drill, fill, and bill. Uh, and, and, and I realized uh, I, I had I'd done it for 18 years, but it was, it was too long. Uh, so I, I had the opportunity to get out. Uh, and I changed. And, and this fits into what we're talking about today is there's so many people going through career changes and, and what that looks like in work, uh, you know, and our, and so our, our lives and our, are, are so tethered, I guess is a good word for it, intertwined with our job title. You know, when I did that, people said, well, my gosh, what will you do? You're quitting. I mean, it was like, you know, no dentist quits a job like that, especially the job I had. And I was ended up working. Actually, I actually was on the golf course more than I was working. I was pretty efficient. I had a good living, but I just I kept trying to look for that excuse to, to, to not be in the office. Um, but I had a very, very successful practice and I had the dream job. Uh, of what most people would want to work 20 to 25 hours a week, make a lot of money, have a good home, have a second home, um, you know, be able to educate your kids. And it just wasn't what I wanted. And really, that was I went through what a lot of people are going through now is what's what's our futures look like? What's the career? Do we do we live to work or work to live? And uh, so I, I went through a lot of that trans transformation back then. I didn't realize I was doing it. I just thought it was another step. You know, other people change careers. Teachers become lawyers and teachers became insurance agents. Uh, why, why couldn't I do that as a dentist? But people just tether you to, you know, to your job title. And we've got to stop doing that. I mean, that's a whole, that's another discussion we can go down. But, you know, the first thing you when you meet somebody new on the street is, so what do you do? Hmm. Um, and we all come up with the, we all define ourselves by this job title. And people make assumptions and they have biases toward that and they go, it's either, oh, that's exciting or, oh, 
<laughs> that's nice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's that, bless that, your heart, right? Like, where do you work? And then you become defined by where do you work? And if we're talking about students, you know, we're talking about young people. We're talking about, um, you know, what do you what do you want to be when you grow up? I mean, we start that with with you know toddlers. What do you want to be when you grow up? And then it's what's your major? You know, as you get a little older, and all those things, all that needs to change. Uh, and and there was a study in Australia, and this all fits into what the future of work looks like. The, um, is that there was an, a study done, and I think it was done with about five thousand students. Um, and they determined that for a 15 year old today, they will have 17 jobs over five careers. And part of that's going to be, you know, now working into our 70s and 80s is nothing. Um, but, you know, when the average age is 100 plus years, uh, we're, we're going to continue working longer. Uh, people are already doing that. But that definition of, you know, the work for 40 or 50 years for the same company and this, doing the same job with the same job title uh, or having a, a vertical career path that you start, you know, as a machinist and then you work for a machine company, you know, for the rest of your life. Maybe you become the CEO of the machine company, but you still work for that company. Uh, now, I mean, when you think about young people of, of how that's going to redefine uh, what the future of work's going to look like is having a 17 different jobs uh, and over a, uh, over five careers, different careers. You know, I've, I've had probably variations of that, but, you know, technically I've had two careers. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe in the next chapter of my life, I'm going to evolve to a third. Um, but to, to literally go every 10, 15 years to shift careers is going to be, uh, real interesting, and that's the that that is going to be what the, part of what the future of work is going to look like. It's certainly going to change what employment looks like for employers. So I think future of work is what's going to look like for the people, the workers, and what's going to look like for the employers. But I've gone, you know, so going back, uh, I, I've been out. This is my twenty sixth year not in dentistry. Um, I. And when I first left, I, I decided I was, you know, the easy low hanging fruit was I'd be a consultant to dentists, help them because they all said, wow, we wish you, we can do what you wanted to do to find out that they actually loved their job. They just didn't like running the business. Hmm. I loved the business aspect. I loved, I was computerized in 1987. Hmm. I mean, our offices were computerized and, and you, you, you know, I'm, I'm an old enough guy to realize you know, now that, you know, I'm, I'm my, my own podcast is Geek Skeezers and Googleization. And I happen to be more of the geek than the geezer out of that. But chronologically, I'm the geezer. Um, but, you know, our first computer was uh, a, a, the server. They told us if we'll upgrade to this and it'll cost me like I, I was an enormous amount of money at the time. Um, we'll have a computer that will last probably the entire life, my entire career. And it was a 386 computer, considering that we're now at like three, four or five gigs, you know, ramp a processing speed. It was a 386. Um, I think I had we upgraded to like 256 kilobytes of RAM. Um, may, maybe it might have even been, you know, uh, half of that. And then uh, we had a they said, if you if you'll invest in a 20 megabyte hard drive, <laughs> um, we'll be set for life. <laughs> and now if I took four pictures on my iPhone, I 
<laughs> you know, I fill up my, fill you up couldn't my even put a video on it. Yeah. Oh, no, no, absolutely. It'd be a really, well, maybe a TikTok video. But it'd, be short, it'd be a pretty short video. Yeah. So things, but I was, you know, way back when, I mean, that was eight years before I, I got out of the practice. And, and so I've always been at that, I, I can't say the leading edge, but I've always been more on the pioneer side. I, I'm not sure I was ever the first to do those things, but I was early on. Uh, at, 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 and that required change. I mean, you know, when you think back, I mean, that's a crap, it's a long time ago. Uh, when I think back of, you know, going from scheduling people on paper, you know, having those big appointment books and putting people in and all of a sudden changing the entire staff, the way of thinking. And the fear is what happens if I make a mistake? What if I press the wrong button, the computer can blow up. Uh, you know, uh, what happens if if we lose the connection uh, and we had to work through all that? Now we're on hyperspeed. You know, here we are, you know, almost 40 or 35, 40 years later, and people are going through this every single day. People may have been OK using uh, computers, digitalization, uh, but all of a sudden they were working from home. They became their own, own IT departments. They didn't have anybody to look for. Uh, they they had to you know just save it to the cloud. <laughs> no, what's the cloud? I'm you know I, I don't want everybody to know my personal information. I don't want everybody to access that. So you know we had this massive shift. Uh, but I've been you know as I said in my TED talk, I've been dancing with change all my life. I'm certainly much more comfortable with it than most people, uh, and that's where you know my my kind of my life's work has progressed to, to helping organizations help people make, you know, make the journey, help, help them bridge the gap between the past and the future, because today is only, it, it, today is just the bridge. Nor, that thing that we keep going back to, that normal, it is no, that normal was a bridge between the past and the future. It was, it was a bridge between yesterday and tomorrow, that's all. And fortunately, in the in you know for most of our lives, and, and certainly going even back you know to our grandparents, parents and grandparents, is that normal that present day could last decades. Normal last it was a long bridge. Mm -hmm. You know, we 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 started it. We heard these stories about the past, and then we got there, and you go, oh, I don't have to worry about tomorrow, uh, or I don't have to worry about the future because you know, I'm not going to be working then. That bridge got really, really short, really, really short. And we seem to be, you know, instead of strolling across that bridge, now we're we're, we're racing. Now we're in a sprint to to get there and not and, and you know, we, we, what we learned is we don't have a lot of sprinters, people that are, <laughs> that are prepared to sprint across that bridge. And they also don't like that the bridge is so short. I mean, they want a longer ride. So we're really, people are really struggling with that change. Uh, and even I am. I mean, there's things that are just, you know, maybe it's my age, but there are things that I'm just, that maybe 30 years ago, I'd be more nimble and, and think differently about it. Um, but now it's like, okay, we, we need to move faster. We need to figure this out now. And, and a lot of it's overwhelming, you know, as you suggested, you know, earlier, you know, is it, you know, is it the politics? Is it, is it technology? Uh, is it society? Um, you know, we have so many divisions. Uh, and then again, we have so many good things. I mean, we, we, we came out of, 
even though it's so disruptive, can you imagine, let, let's go back. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I pose this question often. Can you imagine going back to, let's say our last crisis and the last crisis we had, which seems like an eternity ago was 2008, mm -hmm. um, you know, economic crisis, mortgage, um, people lost, you know, trillions of dollars. Uh, they lost their homes. Um, and it took a couple years to, to get out of that cycle. If, if we were in the same situation then, and, and we didn't have an economic collapse, but we had a, a pandemic that, that caused that collapse. It wasn't a banking crisis. It was a, a pandemic. Where would we have been with technology? I mean, people would have been stuck. I mean, we complain about Zoom fatigue. We, we complain about the, all the, the, the technology that's impacting our lives. But if we went back, and I'm not, it could have even been five years, but if we went back that 10 or 12 years uh, to realize what it would have been, we would have either ha had more people that lost their jobs or more people would have been going to work sick. And, and it would have just spread. Uh, and again, I'm not talking about now with vaccinations. I'm talking about in March and April of 2020. How would we have slowed? How would we have sent people home? Because there was no way to work. We didn't have the bandwidth. They wouldn't have the technology. There was there was video conferencing, but it was certainly clunky. Uh, there, in fact, I interviewed somebody. I think it was in 2010 or 2011, and he claimed. I, I actually connected with him again on LinkedIn, and he claims that he was just too early. But he, he said, I had the first Zoom. And he probably did because I went and listened. I, I went back and listened to the podcast I did with him. Uh, and I forgot that he did it. And he described Zoom. He described what the company was. But it was 2010, 2011. And he couldn't get the financing. The bandwidth wasn't there. Companies weren't willing to adapt, adopt it. He, he dropped it and you know went on to do other. He, he invested in other things. Um, but then, you know, Zoom turned around in the right place at the right time. I mean, you know, they went from like 10 million users a month to 300,000 or, you know, or a three, yeah, 300,000 users like overnight mm -hmm. uh, with that. But if we roll, and then the other thing is we wouldn't have had a vaccine. If we did the vaccines the old way without technology, uh, it would have taken us five to 10 years to develop this, um, you know, the, the, uh, you know, basically the Pfizer and the Moderna versions, because they're they're based on a manufactured genetic code, um, and we did it in weeks, uh, weeks and months. Uh, so we still wouldn't have if it wasn't without technology, we wouldn't have had any means to work. Our economy probably wouldn't recovered, or we would have had a lot more deaths and hospitalizations and and sick people, and uh, we certainly wouldn't have had a vaccine. Um, so there's a lot of benefits that we don't talk about. We talk about all the all the challenges, um, but that's you know all that is going to be the, the future of work. I mean, we're going to you know we're hopefully we're going to get better at at you know what the next crisis or the next disease or the next virus is, uh, and hopefully we're going to become much better at using technologies because having a two-way conference through Zoom or, you know, kind of a, a, a talking through screens is tough. We've gotten much more comfortable with it. Um, but, you know, they're talking in five years. Um, we may have a, well, we already have it. They just don't, it's just too expensive. But you have a hologram that you and I may, may be sitting in the same room, except one of us is just the digitalization of another person. It's been done already. 
And it's I've seen creepy. it at concerts, and it's creepy, but it's cool. It know? is creepy. Yeah, it, it absolutely is creepy. Um, but so as soon as the cost comes down, and some of the cost is related to the to the bandwidth, which is five G, and you know now that we've got five G, and they're already working in six G or, or or virtual reality. You know, as soon as we get the, those clunky headsets that are down, um, you know, in five or ten years, if we have another pandemic or something like that. How does that change the future of work? How does that change education? How does that change where we work? You know, the debate right now is going back to the office or, or remote. And unfortunately, some of that decision is driven by companies that have a lot of money invested in real estate. And some of those decisions is, well, everybody has to come back to, to the office because what are we going to do with all our leases? <laughs> Which is the wrong decision, by the way. I mean, it, it's a necessary conversation, but it's absolutely the wrong decision because you're not going to be able to preserve your talent or, or attract and retain your talent if the only reason that you're making that decision is you have all this real estate and you got to fill it. Um, and, and what are you going to do? So um, it, it's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of directions that we can go from there, but I'll, I'll shut up for a minute. <laughs> no, no, it's fascinating stuff. It kind of makes me wonder because, you know, before we got on, we were talking about your new PC that you have. And then I think back to the old 386, because at that time, and we have a little more in common than I even knew. I used to be a dental assistant in the Navy oh, wow. during the time you were a dentist. So I remember those days. And I don't even know if, if when you made the decision to start wearing gloves, because when HIV came and I remember dentists complaining, oh, I can't feel anything with these gloves and I'm not wearing. And I used to go to lunch with blood underneath my fingernails. Oh, and it was so it was such a crushing crisis, but now the thought of sticking your fingers in somebody's mouth without a glove, it's, it's shocking to think about it. Yeah. That was uh, the late eighties, you know, yeah. uh, Kimberly Brigalis. I still remember her name, you know, from Florida. She was, she died after going to the dentist and that mm -hmm. became a big thing. So people became fearful. I often, I often say facetiously, and again, it's how I looked at the business differently. Most dentists said, my goodness, we're going to have a surcharge. We're going to charge everybody like $10 for the, for the, for the tray because we got to sterilize it. We have cost of gloves and masks and all these things. And we're going to have to raise our fees or, or we're not going to raise our fees. We're just going to charge you an additional fee to be safe. And I looked at it as like, well, one, it's my obligation to do it. Mm -hmm. And I remember writing, and I was, I've always done a lot of writing. I wrote a newsletter, I sent it out. And it was like, here's the big deal. You can feel safe when you come to work, when you come to us. And we, and I went out and we invested in uniforms. We all had scrubs. Um, we, but we, you know, I don't know how many gloves we had uh, at the time, um, but we had just, we had crates of gloves. And they were hard to come by had, at first. Yeah. Yeah. I had a lot of people, you know, I had a large staff. Um, you know, certainly using masks, uh, but I also was trained in the OR. Uh, so I had a, a residency and then I had hospital privileges. So, you know, working with gloves, I mean, I didn't do it in the office at first, but you're right. I mean, you know, it's crazy. But if you're in the OR, you're doing orthodontic cases that are seven hours long. So you know what it's like to have a mask. Oh, on well, day, that's you know? a whole other story. I actually worked with an oral surgeon and or, when orthognathin cases were taking some people seven hours long. Um, we were doing, I don't get too technical, but moving somebody's jaw, a sagittal split yeah. or, or a Lefort, which is moving somebody's upper jaw. And I know we're probably grossing out a lot of people. Oh no, they <laughs> have to see it to fully appreciate a Lefort one or a BSSO. Yeah. Yeah. We, we used to do sagittal splits in 45 minutes. 
Get out of here. Yeah, I did it. I did almost, as a general dentist. I wasn't an oral surgeon. As a general dentist, I did about 750 to 800 um, surgeries as, a, as an assistant. I, I wasn't doing them surgeries, but I was the assistant on those. Uh, yeah, the, the surgeon I worked with, he, he was he, he was still he was he was my best friend. Um, he's he's since retired. Um, but we he he did close to 2000 surgeries over uh, over about a 17 or 18 year career. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was massive. But to think that when you went to the OR, you had all these procedures. And then we went back to our office and we're literally living in saliva and spit and blood. And it was like, oh, yeah, I can stick my hand in there. Yeah, the cut's not too big. I'll put a bandaid on it. I mean, it's bizarre. Or I the mean, finger you, cuts. I, remember I, those? I, think about, <laughs> I mean, I didn't think about it in that way. But when you think about the future of work, uh, going back from then till now, just in that space, how that has changed. Uh, you know, I, I, every time I walk into the grocery store, if, if we did this in, two, in 2019, I walk into a store with my hood up because I always go to the grocery store after I go to the gym because it's right next door and I'll pick up whatever supplies we have. So I walk in literally with the mask on mm -hmm. and my hood up. <laughs> they would have called, I mean. A couple of years ago. Yeah. Walk into a bank <laughs> with, or, 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 the, or, you know, our, our local convenience store with my hood up and a mask. It's take down your mask and take down your hood. Mm -hmm. And we want to measure now we're all covered up. And if you don't do that, then you're, you know, then you're, you're, you're posing the risk. Now it's the risk of coming in not covered and not protected. So we, we've had all these things that we took for granted, you know, what was normal, you know, prior to our conversation, you know, prior to the, the I think it was 1987 when that frick came into being, uh, when, well, AIDS was in the early, early before that, but when it sort of hit dentistry. Uh, was in, in the mid to late 80s. Um, normal before that was you went to the dentist. The dentist never wore a mask. He never wore gloves. You know, half of them didn't even wash their hands. I remember dentists that would smoke while they were working on it. Yeah. yeah, with oxygen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, if you look at some old film, some old movies, um, you know, people were, uh, you know, they were smoking everywhere. I mean, they were smoking <laughs> in the doctor's office. Um, they were smoking in hot in hospitals. <laughs> you used to smoke on airplanes. Mm -hmm. uh, you used to smoke, which which all brings it back to this idea of normal. That was normal. And to, to when when the laws started to change, the regulations started to change. It was like it was normal to do that. But it wasn't necessarily smart or the right thing. And then people fought that. People, I, you know, you remember, I mean, it's only in the last 20 years, the fight against smoking, mm -hmm. you know, banning, you couldn't go into a bar or a restaurant if you smoke. And the studies went down that and the protests and it got pretty ugly. But it was normal to be able to do that for, you know, at least for our entire lifetime mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and before that. Uh, for some of those things. So normal's always been changing. Normal's always that bridge between the past and, you know, the, yesterday and tomorrow. Uh, just getting, you know, again, it's getting, we're, we're moving faster on the bridge and the bridge is getting shorter and we're just running out of runway. And so, we're, we're, in fact, I, I, I wish I can give him credit. I don't know who said this, but tomorrow, uh, tomorrow or the future is 
or, or today is, is just a shifting tomorrow hmm. uh, or an evolving tomorrow. I can't remember how he, exactly how he phrased it, um, but it's true. I mean, it, where, where we used to have like three distinct eras in our life at the past, present, and maybe a future, you know, and now we just have the past and the future. Um, and because the future is always evolving, it's evolving right in front of our eyes as we're talking. There's, there's you know, it's, I want to be surprised. We get a text about something happening, some disruption, something that's going to go on. And that takes us back to VUCA. Mm-hmm. So we, we're living, we're literally living in VUCA and VUCA is our present day and, and whatever tomorrow looks like could be, you know, wildly different, except we still think of careers as what's your job? What are we, where are we, we going to go to work? What, what are we going to do? Uh, and, you know, even people now looking for a job is like they're looking for their dream, dream job. Many people are, especially mm-hmm. boomers and, and maybe Gen X. Um, millennials and Gen Z may, well, millennials are now in their 40s. So maybe right. young millennials and Gen Z are, are thinking differently about it. But other people are saying, you know, I'm going to get out of this place, but I'm going to look for a job and hopefully it'll carry me to the end of my career. I don't know. Uh, really? I mean, you know, the, the half-life of, a, of, a, of most job skills today is less than five years. Technology, it's less than two years. Um, so even unless you, if you're accepting that job with the understanding that of the, the job title may be the same five years from now, but what I have to do, how I need to keep up the skills I need, uh, you know, for that job may be massively different. And the organization I'm working for is going to be way different. You know, there's going to be team members that probably aren't going to be on the team. Your bosses may shift. The products and services you build may be different. That's all part of the future of work. I mean, everybody thinks that I'm going to have this job and the world is just going to come to a screeching halt and stand still. Everything is going to stand still around me as long as I have that job title. And that just doesn't exist anymore. So that, I I know we're, 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 probably scaring the crap out of people. And it's really terrifying. Well, if uh, we don't talk about it, then Ira, it's not going to happen, right? <laughs> well, it's going to happen whether we talk about it or exactly. not. So, but hopefully we're going to have a couple of people rethink what they thought their future was going to be uh, and 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 be able to help them, help them that way because it, it's going to happen one way or the other. I mean, we're, if we go back to the way it was, uh, first of all, it depends on who you are. If, if you were making tons of money, you loved what you did, you know, you, you did money, you know, money, resources, family wasn't a problem, then yeah, maybe people want to go back and be nostalgic back then. But I often bring up the fact is, and we're struggling with that now, uh, going back, back, going back to the way it was. And people remember the 50s and 60s. You know, I remember when life was so much simpler. Well, if you ever go back and and look at the vid- look at what the world was like, what the U.S. was like between, let's say, sixty one and seventy five, but let's say in the sixties, it was pretty ugly. First of all, we had the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a president who was assassinated, and a presidential candidate who was assassinated, and uh, uh, Martin Luther King who was assassinated. Um, we had, you know, cr- crazy inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, I was watching a Beatles documentary that I missed. It's out. Of, there was a new one out, but there was this was out about four years, and they were showing the scenes from 1965. So that's when there were riots. I mean, and we're we're talking 
big riots mm -hmm. in the cities, New York, uh, oh, all major cities, Detroit. I mean, they were literally burning down sections mm -hmm. of the city. And when the Beatles arrived in Jacksonville uh, and they started to play stadiums, that was the year that uh, that they came over and played Met Stadium. So that was the beginning of concerts in, in, in large venues. In Jacksonville, it was segregated. And the Beatles had said, we're not playing. It says in our contract that we're not playing in segregated uh, arenas. Mm -hmm. And can you imagine? I mean, that was in the South. I mean, we're yeah. struggling with that now, not with segregation, you know, just because it's illegal, but with with all the controversies that are going on. We live through this is just deja vu uh, for some of us. I mean, we're going back into the 60s. And to think that the Beatles were the, you know, they, they were 21 or 22, 23 years old at that point, you know, we're, we're saying that's not fair. I mean, we don't have that. I mean, we the U.S. you know was the best country in the world, yet in Europe segregation wasn't the problem. Uh, you know, to think that they were they were going to have to come to a stadium and you were going to have whites and blacks, and there were people that were interviewed to say it was so strange to be sitting in this arena surrounded by people of color, and the people of color said it's being surrounded by whites. I mean, we just take that for granted. Yeah, and I guess you could say it was 50-some years ago, which is a long time, but it wasn't that long ago. No. It's crazy to think about. Although, yeah, if we can go back and, and think of yeah, yeah, I mean, well, what I was getting to was, okay, that was normal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was normal to be segregated, maybe not so much in the North, but the South. Um, but it, other things that were normal is if you were a, a woman, a female, you know, you're an 18 year old woman and said, what am I going to do with my life? I, I'd like to go to an Ivy League, Ivy League school. You couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to get a credit card. You couldn't do it without your husband's. You, you couldn't get birth control without your husband's permission. Wow. Or, or your father. I mean, beyond, you know, where your father. You needed a, a, par a parent or a husband's permission. If you were a single female, you could couldn't get birth control legally. Uh, I mean, it's it's so weird that I mean, it must people are probably thinking I'm like 140 years old, and, and I look yeah, but it's early. it's not that long ago. It's, it's funny to think about the fact that this is in most of our lifetimes, except if you're you know under the age of 50, you know, right? But it's you couldn't do the military. I mean, even even though women were finally admitted to the mil to the academies uh, in the late seventies and eighties, I believe it was early eighties, uh, they couldn't go to battle mm -hmm. um, until you know the last 10, 15 years um, or so. So there were there, there were all these obstacles that that we've had, and we've you know we worked through them, and we're moving toward equality, you know, both gender equality and racial equality, and orientation equality. But we got a long way to go. Um, but 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 that's going to continue to progress. So what are we going to be talking about? You know, if we do our 50th reunion of the show, uh, <laughs> it's you know, what will we be talking about of, of all these things that have changed? What we, we won't remember them all, though, because I can talk about it because the past was in slow motion. It, it took you know, from the time that the, that uh, LBJ signed the Civil Rights Movement 
uh, legislations, um, you know, which was 45, 47 years ago, 48 years ago. Um, it, it was sort of slow motion for a while because there were protests and go through the courts and and changes and people did it under the slot. You know, you, you did this stuff. Let's not we're not going to speak about how we discriminate. Um, but, you know, it's so much it, there's so many examples that it still exists. Classic one is wage discrimination. Women still, you know, get paid 81 cents out of out of every dollar that a man does with the same exact degree experience. A black woman with the same experience as a white man gets paid 58 cents to the dollar. Hispanic, I think, is 65 cents or thereabouts. It's it's illegal, but it still goes on. Mm -hmm. It's and we're talking so 50, almost 50 years from the time that said we're going to have equal rights for everybody. It's not equal rights for for everybody. But I guess the point is, is that going back to sometimes normal is hard to break and get people out of the mindset. But past normal uh, is, you know, what was what was normal is I always say, what normal do you want to go back to? Mm. And, and people forget. I mean, especially if we're talking to, you know, about women in the workplace, um, you know, women in 1950 made up uh, 32 of, percent of every prime age working age adult female work. So one out of three, 82% of men work. So four out of five. Today, it's down to 62% of men work. Uh, I don't, we, we can go into a whole conversation where the 48%. <laughs> what do they do? They're playing golf, probably. Yeah. Huh? Uh, well, yeah, we're in prison <laughs> or addicted to opioids or can't get a job or unemployed. I mean, there's a lot of reasons that, that go into that. But women went from 32% to almost 60% before the pandemic. It's it's down to now 56% because one thing that hasn't changed is women are still the primary caregivers, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's of kids or 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 um or, or older or their parents, their elder, elder care. So you have women um you know basically masked the the growth the the work the uh, the labor population you know for all those years and then they peaked um at about where men are but men dropped out you know one one out of every five men who used to work doesn't work over over and that took that court took uh the course of 70 years you know for that that to happen but it happened that it just happened so slowly but normal you know we, do we want to go back to normal you want to be a housewife um, do you want to be the, the sole caregiver? Um, is, is that the world? And you go, oh, no, 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 we don't want that. Well, that that was normal. That was normal up through the 60s and the 70s. And you didn't have your choice of schools. E even today in going to any school, uh, you know, when I, I went to dental school, we, there were 162 kids in my class. Um, there was one black male and 12 women. The class now, uh, it's, it's much smaller. But the classes now are 70% minority, mm -hmm. uh, which includes women, people of color, and also foreign. Um, white males do not make up the majority of, of, of um, future doctors, uh, future dentists, future attorneys. Um, but so do we want to go back to the normal that used to be, that if you're a white male, you, you, you had choices of career, and if you were 
a person of color and a female, you, you know, you were limited to what you did. Uh, so, you know, even the debate going on in the Supreme Court now, you know, it's, it's the arguments. We won't get into the politics because that's not the road. I'm well, sure. I mean, and even that, I mean, wouldn't it be great to go back to a time when you could talk about politics and yeah, it was still uncomfortable, but it's not going to break a family apart. You know? yeah. So I, it's funny. And there's, there's two things I want to go back to because I'm thinking of these as we're talking, but you could go back and so in terms of embracing technology, right? Like you could have said my 386 computer is the last computer I'm ever going to need. And now you know better. You yourself just bought a new PC. But is there ever a part of you, number one, that says, well, I want to wait another year because next year's PC would be better than this one. At what point do you embrace it and commit? And then the second piece, and, and you mentioned a lot about this, thinking back, I was the other day trying to put together a playlist of my favorite country artists back when country music sounded a little bit more like country music. And it was a, a Merle Haggard playlist. And, and I listened to the Okie from Muskogee. And then, then I listened to the fight inside of me. And those were both 60s protest anthems. And I thought, wow, we could hear him say, you know, if you don't love it, leave it. I don't like the way people are talking about our country. That's exactly what I hear here in Dixon, Tennessee. Well, we want to go back to the way. So he's saying those, he made those songs when I was a kid. I was born in 64. I think they came out in the early 60s. So at what point does VUCA become a rerun of something we've done previously just on steroids? And then the second piece is, at what point do we just say, I'm going to adopt the technology of today with an open mind of the future? Otherwise, you could be waiting forever and then thinking that everything is so unique that we can't adapt. But in, in a way, we've we've seen some of this movie before, haven't we? We've seen a lot of it. Going back to the Beatles, uh, and only because it's fresh in my mind, listen to the words from Help. That's what it was about. It was about the transition. It, it was. It was. It's very, very interesting when they, when they played the words, and it was like, "Wow, this this is today." I mean, we can be talking about this, and, and it has so many applications. Uh, but you know, going back to how quickly you should change your computer. I mean, so here's different mindsets. My the the, the last big computer I got. I mean, you know, because I've, I've, I have laptops and I have tablets and I have phones and, and all those things. But a big investment, which pretty much runs my business, was four years ago. And they said, I'm going to order another computer, you know, if it, if it comes. And, and my wife says, you just bought that. <laughs> <laughs> but they're supposed to say that, Ira. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, would you spy? I said, it was four years ago. And I go, yeah, but you paid a lot of money for it. And uh, frankly, I, you know, paid I got an equal computer for less money. Um, and, you know, but my concern was maybe we don't have semi, can they get the boards? Maybe right. they can't get the parts, you know, for that. So I was a little worried that it was going to be more. Um, but, uh, you know, so I'm not the guy that goes out every year or every two years and says, oh, I'm going to replace and upgrade it. In fact, um, the people can't see me, but I'm not wearing an Apple watch because I can't stand things on my wrist. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and people are always shocked. It's like, you don't have an Apple watch or you don't have a watch or even a fitness watch. Mm -hmm. uh, no, I, I don't. I mean, that, so you, we can pick and choose what we need. I mean, there's certain things, you know, could I live without a computer? No, I, mm -hmm. I couldn't do that. Um, could I live without my smartphone? Uh, probably not. Mm -hmm. um, but then again, going back all those years, I've carried, a, I had a pager 
going back to 19, you know, 76 or something. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've always had that contact and, you know, you just able to put it down, but it was really annoying because you'd get beeped and then you had to go find a payphone, Right. <laughs> and then hope you had a quarter. Yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, you know, and then as soon as the phones came out, it used to, you know, carry around this bag, this piece of luggage, <laughs> you know, every, everywhere I went because I did work through the hospital and the OR and I was on call and, and, and did a lot of things that way. Um, but, but that was, you know, to us, that was advancing, but we, we sort of picked and choose, chose what we want. And people can say, Hey, I'm still going to have a beeper. I don't need to, to call somebody right away. And other times it was just convenience. Uh, we're still going to have that. The problem is, is we talk about those things just as, a, just as a fax machine, a fax machine. I remember, you know, when I, when I bought supplies and they came and they said, we'll give you a fax machine. <laughs> and it was like $2,000 of a fax machine. You know, if you, if you, if you promise to buy all your products from us and mm -hmm. they go, sure. Wow. I can get a fax machine. That was in the eighties. Well, so people still have fax machines. They didn't go away. Mm -hmm. I mean, they still use them, especially the government and, and medical offices. I, I don't know why, but they still do. Uh, so 40 years later, there's still a fax machine. Um, but we can't get, um, you know, I mean, you can't go buy an eight track. You can't get a cassette player uh, with easy. I mean, you can buy them. You can buy them most easily on on eBay mm -hmm. <laughs> or, or that. Uh, but nobody's making their dollar from that. I mean, you know, to buy vinyl records and, you know, final phonographs are uh, making a comeback, you know, now digital. Uh, you can plug it in your computer. Um, but there were all these things that, that we could pick and choose. They weren't life threatening. Um, but to be able to, you know, if we go back to our, what our topic's supposed to be about future work, it, we're, we're gonna, you're gonna need that to get a job. You're gonna need that to get paid. There, we just, I just put up an infographic. It just created it with hard skills and soft skills. And, and we won't get to that side, but when we, when we talk about how prepared people are for this future of work, which is a concern both for employers and for uh, the workers. There are going to be 128 million projection in 19, uh, 19, tomorrow ahead is, in 2030, there is going to be 128 million skilled jobs. There'll be 170 million total jobs that we'll have. Um, there's going to be 128 million skilled jobs. There, at the current rate, if right now we said we're going to a, the, all skilled jobs, there's only 55 million workers that have the skills that are needed to do all the skilled jobs that are available today. Now, it were within the next nine years, eight years. So we can close that gap by reskilling and upskilling, which is a whole conversation that's going on. And at best, if we're really, really aggressive, it's going to be 30 million people. We can upskill. So now we're up to um, do the math like 86 million. Mm -hmm. And if we add another 10 million of graduates, assuming that we do a better job at educating people for skilled jobs, we have 96 million people to do 128 million skilled jobs. Now, some of that gap's going to close because of automation. Mm -hmm. we, we may not need that. But then the question comes, what do we do with all those other people uh, that aren't working? But the reverse is true of how many low skilled jobs and we we're used to having lower skilled jobs with high pay. I mean, that's how we built the middle class mm -hmm. here. That was the industrial age. You basically could have a high school degree or not even a high school degree, maybe even a GED or not at all. And you can work, go to work in a factory on a production line. And as long as you showed up every day, 
uh, and then those most of those facilities were unionized. Uh, you were guaranteed that you were you were basically doing a lower skilled job, doing the same thing over and over and over again, but getting paid $35, $40, $50 an hour, especially if you worked in some of the auto related businesses, the automotive industry. Those jobs don't exist right. anymore. And we still, and that's where a lot of the men are, by the way, that's, that's part of the problem because men stop going to college. They, uh, where, where now it's, it's 60% of all graduates are women where it used to be 10%, uh, just a few years ago. So we, we've got this gap of, uh, we have a hundred and some million, I can't remember the exact number, but a hundred and some million, uh, low skilled workers to fill 55 million low skilled jobs. And we we have a hundred and you know we have well under a hundred million to fill one hundred and thirty million jobs hmm. uh, of skilled workers. So we got this huge gap. Um, th unfortunately, that's the future of work. I mean, it's like well, we then we shouldn't automate everything. Well, if we don't don't automate anything, but then we're not competitive, and we unless we 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 rule, we take off take out China. I mean, I don't want to say take out, I mean, literally eliminate, you know, billion and a half people right? Um, and take them off the take. You can't just take them out of the equation. We, we can't. We, that's who are, we're competing with. And if we're going to we, we can't live by buying our own products. So we got to export them. But our competitions, uh, you know, with China, uh, it's, it's even smaller country. It's, it's Africa. I mean, the, the fact is the literacy rate in Africa is much higher than it is. The digital literacy rate in Africa is much higher than it is in the United States. Hmm. Um, so, you know, you can go into, in, into, you know, some really remote areas and you have, and, and now again, the cost of living and, you know, what they're doing is, is, is different, but they're, they're, there's, they have startups, there's investments that are being made. People are on mobile phones all the time. It's the, the, and I'm trying to remember, we just, I just put this infographic together. The, the functional, the, I think this was a 2020 Barbara Bush foundation, um, research was that there's 110 million functionally illiterate people in our country, one third, hmm. um, because literacy, functional literacy now is, uh, reading, writing, arithmetic and digital skills. You know, can, can they use a smartphone? Um, can they use a computer? And, you know, so often you see people go in and people, you know, even if they go to the local library, if you do that anymore, um, you know, people sit down and someone has to come over and show them how to find the browser, how to how to connect with something. Uh, and so we have we have a third of the population is functionally illiterate and one out of five high school graduates are illiterate. They can't read. Wow. Um, again, we, we keep peeling this onion of what's wrong, mm -hmm. but that's going to affect the future work because they're going to get further and further behind. And then, and even people that are moderately literate um, are, are going to struggle. Uh, not that we need people to, they don't have to read War and Peace and, and the Chaucer and Shakespeare. Uh, we're not talking that level. We're talking about basic instructions. Wow. Uh, you know, to be able to do that. So it's scary. I mean, so, you know, I, I, I and I don't want to frighten people, but it, that point's scary. But for people that are educated, I mean, I, I, let's look at the other side. I, I think people that 
that are saying, what, what can I do? Or I'm thinking about my kids or I'm thinking, you know, I'm 30, 40 or 50 or even 60 years old. I'm thinking about my next chapter. What am I going to do? The opportunity is huge, but you have to, you know, I talk a lot about adaptability and, you know, and you hear these things such as be, you got to be resilient. You're going to get knocked down and, and bounce back. You're going to lose your job, but there's another one to be found. That's true, but just getting bounced, knocked down and bounce and bouncing back is your punching bag. <laughs> <laughs> Good way to look at it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is, you know, men, the mental health problems that we have, the stress, the burnout, um, that's not a way to live and, and give credit to the younger population and saying, I'm not doing that anymore. And, you know, the numbers just came out again today, another 4.3 million people, which is now 26 million people quit their jobs in the last five months. Um, people are finally saying, I'm not working for I'm not working in a bad environment. I'm not going to keep working for low pay I'm, or, or pay unfair pay. I'm not even going to say it's low pay, but I'm not going to work in unfair circumstances. I'm not going to work for for a, a toxic boss, uh, toxic culture. Uh, there's another opportunity out there. And hey, I liked it sort of last year because I, I reconnected with my kids and my spouse and my family and and reflected a lot of it. And I'm going to work hard, but I'm not going to do it like I used to mm. uh, and I'm, because I don't want to end up in the situation that that happened anyway. Um, so people are are, you know, re, rethinking what work looks like. Uh, employers are thinking about how do I get everybody to come back to the office because we have all these leases, <laughs> <laughs> real estate, uh, not all companies, but it's still a significant number. Uh, that is really struggling. So the future of work is going to be fascinating. There's huge opportunities out there. Uh, it's all going to require upskilling and, and and learning new skills. You know, I'm I'm certainly at the, the point where I should just say, screw it. I'm not going to look. <laughs> I, I don't need to learn anything else. You know, I'm going to coast. Uh, you know, fortunately, I I do have I never have enough. But mm. you know, I've got some retirement. I've, I've at least have a retirement plan, which 50 percent wow. of my. <laughs> That's a scary thought. Well, you have to. You got a new computer, so. You got at yeah. least four years, Ira. <laughs> yeah, so I, I can continue, you know, but I continue doing that. I got projects on my plate that I want to do. But, you know, I have a lot of friends that retired and they're enjoying life and they're traveling and they're doing the things they want to do. And good for them. Um, uh, you know, that's just not my men mindset. Um, but having, you know, beyond the resilience, we talk about having a growth mindset. Um, and for readers or listeners who aren't familiar with that, um, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm willing to learn. No, it's way beyond that. It's willing to try something you didn't try. Um, it's willing to say, I was really good at what I did, but I'm going to try something I'm not really good at. And, you know, even if I'm not the best, that's okay, because I'm going to learn something and I might be able to apply what I learned. And it's part of that. Ex it's the experience of learning. And learning is not a destination. It's not getting a degree. Uh, you know, I got my master's uh, in leadership when I, in my fifties, I grad, I literally got it when I was 57 years old, I, I finished it and people go, well, why, why are you doing it? I mean, you, you don't need to, you, one is you got a doctor degree already. You got a bachelor's degree already. Mm -hmm. You're, you're in your fifties. Why would you spend $25,000 to get a, a degree, another degree? You're just, are you just one of those people who like getting initials after the name or, you, or enjoy mean, punishment? Huh? Yeah, I, I don't. It was the experience. It was, ha, you know, hanging around with people that, you know, one is was learning new things. It was ha, it was forcing myself to have some discipline uh, to be able to learn that it was 
meeting people that I probably wouldn't have met before. And the experience was, you know, I had 22 year old graduate recent grads that were going into a program they probably shouldn't have been in. And we were we part of it was online. And, you know, I was embedded with with some military because it was a leadership. I was a master's in leadership. And uh, a few of them were embedded in Afghanistan and Iraq. Hmm. Um, so they couldn't even disclose their locations other than say they're. And so we were connecting online, going through that conversation and talking about the future of leadership. Uh, you know, one was a I'll never forget. He was a Muslim chaplain in the U.S. Army in Iraq. You, you talk about the challenges. Yeah. Wow. What that. a balance. Yeah. Yeah. But I wouldn't have had that experience. I wouldn't have had that exposure um, with, with, with who I was and where I was and, and being able to learn about that. So people don't have to invest that much money. I mean, now, especially with a lot of the online training, but people need to be more open-minded, but it, it's that thinking of learning as a journey. And so often is, is, well, what degree did you get and what are you going to do with it? I mean, my mother asked that, he's like, what are you, what are you going to do with it? And well, now I'm teaching actually, I'm an adjunct professor, so I wouldn't have had that opportunity. But even if I never decided I wanted to do that, um, there were, there was, it's what I learned then the experiences. Sometimes it took literally 15 years to understand how to apply some of that, but it, it worked. Um, but we're, we, we have this thing with the growth mindset, we have this counterbalance. So there's a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. And for years, I had this fixed mindset is that when 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 you get good grades and when you achieve something and even as a dentist um, uh, or even owning my business is when do you say I don't have the answers and people look at you and go, well, you're supposed to. That's what we're paying you for. And therefore, you become trapped in your own identity. You become trapped in your own job title, You, you in, in, in your own self-confidence and everybody else's of expectations is that if I'm paying you all that money, if I'm paying you to hold that job title, if I'm paying you to be our CFO, COO, if I'm paying you to be on the production line and you say, you know, I'd like to go back to school. I'd like to learn something. I'd like to try something new. We got penalized. It's why are you quitter? You can't hold the job down. Um, you, why are you always, I, I remember saying my, my ex, I remember telling me you'll no matter, you'll never be happy no matter what you do. Hmm. Because along the way I did a lot of things. I played a lot of golf. Um, but I took courses, I bought new things. I bought a lot of gadgets. I computerized the office. It's like, why don't you just stop and enjoy life? Why do you have to keep spending money on your business? And that's a fixed mindset. That's a fixed mindset to say, hey, you achieved it. Just write it out. And that was never my, my you know, deep down, it wasn't my mindset. But it took courage to come out and say, OK, I've had enough. I'm going to try something. And if I'm not good at it at first, I've probably learned something. Maybe I learned that I'm not very good at doing that. <laughs> no, well, when know. she said you'll never be happy, I think the definition of happy for you, it sounds like, is I'm happy when I'm learning. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, and doing, I mean, I love doing things. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I didn't like doing dentistry, um, but I loved, I loved marketing. I mean, I loved writing and, and sharing and influencing and being part of the community and leading, you know, being a leader. I loved 
the benefits of the position that it got me, but it wasn't the only path to get there. So it's it's not and actually having, you know, I'm in the assessment business. So that's that's what my business is, success performance solutions. We we test people, we do pre-employment and leadership testing. So and my my motivation, everybody always thinks is like, oh, your your motivation to learn must be like off the charts. And it's actually average. Hmm. Um, I I lo- I want to learn when I know how when I can apply it. And even though there wasn't a direct application, there were things that I know that I that I could achieve by going through the steps. And but people struggle with that. People struggle this day. It's like, what am I going to do? You know, I've been doing this for 30 years. What am I going to do? I, you know, I only have a high school degree or I didn't finish college or I'm too old. When whenever you hear that, that's that's that called that fixed mindset. Something's holding you back that I can't do it because I see it as a burden. I see it as a hurdle. I see it as a challenge. Uh, and again, just because you went back to school, it doesn't mean that, well, you know, see, I'm not good enough because I only got a 2.0. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, there's a lot of really, really successful people that had 2.0. <laughs> a lot of people are successful people that didn't actually finish college. Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying college is the only path, um, but a trade school, a certificate, um, you know, watching YouTube videos, learning how to do something. People do it all the time. And, and again, you don't have to, you know, even if you're watching a video on how to, you know, how to barbecue, um, it doesn't mean you have to win, be, win the prize of the next fair on, you know, best barbecue of the, of the year. You do it because you enjoy it and you learn something and you got some benefit from it. And then some people say, hey, I'm going to make a business out of that. I, I'm, I'm pretty good. Uh, and they and they have goals, but there's people that just stopped, and they stopped because they were told they weren't smart enough, they weren't tall enough, they weren't big enough, they weren't good enough, they weren't rich enough, they were in the wrong color, um, and a growth mindset is just so critically important because it says there really there there are challenges out there, but there's no barriers, and even if we master it a little bit, we're going to find new opportunity how to apply that, and that's what I've done. I mean, I you know I write. I mean, I've written six books. Um, there's probably a couple more in me if I can find the time <laughs> to do it. Um, there's probably not a, a day that goes by that I don't write some article or post something. I'm always creating. I'm always writing. You know, I'm always doing videos. I'm doing podcasts. I do that all the time. It wasn't natural. I'm a natural introvert. Mm-hmm. So nobody may believe that, but <laughs> uh, but I'm an introvert. Um, it wasn't natural for me to do some of the things that I do, but I, I I learned how to do it. I stepped out of the comfort zone. There are still things that I know I, I go, boy, that was forced. You know, I wish I could do that different. I wish I could be like somebody else who might be extroverted or just maybe naturally gifted that they can have a conversation and flow and be much more animated, um, much more humorous. Remembered. I can't remember jokes to save my life, but, but to, to remember that, um, but you, you just keep doing it and you practice it. And, you know, I appreciate going back to what you talked in the beginning. It's like, wow, you have a distinguished career. Uh, it, I, I joke, I say, you know, this, I am now a 26 year overnight success. <laughs> <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah. And, and that's the path. I mean, that's where it is. Um, if I still had the mindset of, if I still had that fixed mindset, uh, I would you and I wouldn't be talking. I, I, I would be still talking about filling and drilling. <laughs> I'd be talking about how hard it is. Uh, you know, and when I left, I, being accepted by the business community 
of I, I dropped the I dropped the doctor in front of it for two reasons. One is the immediate conversation was, "Oh, you're a dentist. What do you know about running a manufacturing business?" Mm. And I, uh, it was about leadership. It didn't matter what I did. It was like, "Here's my accomplishments, and if I if I didn't say dentist under and here's what I accomplished, you'd hire me a harpy." As soon as it's a dentist, it's like what do you know just because your friends your neighbor's a dentist and you don't like him or, <laughs> or like you don't like going work. to the dentist yeah 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 there's there's a million things so that was one and then the other one was confusion people would say oh you're a doctor and then they, they assume i was a doctor of psychology ah and i go i, I don't want to misrepresent myself out there because i'm not a doctor of psychology i mean i love psychology i was studying behaviors and and you know why people don't want to change and why they don't do their jobs well but I'm, I'm not a doc. I'm not, I don't have a formal degree. So I, I dropped it. But the degrees and having initials after my name had nothing to do with it. It was it was a means to an end. It was it was it was the journey, you know, to get there. I wouldn't have done any of that. You know, I would I would have just believed the press that why don't I just you know, why don't I just be miserable for the next 20 years? I'll just keep doing dentistry. I'll just believe. Be, keep playing golf and you know there's a lot of people in other careers mm -hmm. that are are just writing out their time uh and sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't um there's people that just stop you know i'm too old to go back to school uh you know in my current class i mean uh which was last semester organizational change uh, is what i was teaching and i had somebody who was 50 who worked for the, a really large healthcare system, and I had three recent grads, 22 years old, uh, and then a couple in between. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, so people were going back to school, either continuing their education or mid-career in their 30s and early 40s, saying, "I want to get to the next step." And then you had somebody who was 50 years old, and in one of the other classes of one of my other colleagues, uh, they they had somebody who was 62. Wow. In fact, when I went back for my degree, uh, as I said, when I finished, I was 57, my master's, um, there was there was somebody five years older than me. Jeez. And, and he was he was a CEO, but he was at the end of his career. I mean, he was he was he retired just shortly later, um, but he he came back too for, you know, different reasons. Uh, and so, I, again, we're going to the future of work is is going to be continually changing. VUCA is not going to stop. I mean, we're on this exponential curve. Um, you know, one of the ways I describe exponential to people, uh, nobody heard, most people didn't know what exponential was before the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> now we saw these hockey sticks, you know, we're, we're, you know, the COVID's expanding at exponential rate. Everybody learned it's a hockey stick, you know, on a graph. Um, but if we continue on this on the same path we're on, and uh, you know this wasn't mine, but there's something called the the law of acceleration, um, and people may be familiar with Moore's law, which was every eighteen every eighteen months the processing speed of a computer doubled. Hmm. That's that was the rate we were on, and now you know we have that from our three eighty six to the one we just bought. Uh, it's so fast, and now we're talking about quantum computing, which is ridiculous. Uh, but if if we took the count the 2020 year calendar of events from january to december 31st and it's it, it took 365 days for us to go through the first year of the pandemic to experience the racial injustices um uh aubrey uh uh ahmed aubrey mm -hmm. um 
George Floyd, um, you know, the killings of, of, of well, the social unrest and the, and the, the murder of people of color. Um, we had the pandemic. We had the injection of five, trillions of dollars invested in our in our economy. We had an election that still doesn't seem to be over mm -hmm. for some people. Uh, we've had all those events. It was a really, really crazy year. Imagine if all everything that took place in th in 12 months would take place in three years. Well, on the trajectory, if I can talk, <laughs> the trajectory that we're on, in by the by 2040, we will have this, a similar experience of 2020 in the first three months of 2040. And if that continues by 2060, it will be the first 11 days. Wow. Um, so we already have had like three experiences like that because things would just happen all the time. Now, all of them aren't going to impact us directly, but in our personal lives, there's just going to be stuff always happening, always changing or new technologies are dropping or new disruptions or, you know, maybe it's going to be a crisis. Maybe it's going to be a celebration of something, but there are going to be events changing our lives 11 every day, every 11 days, that what used to take 12 months, and prior to this used to take a decade, mm -hmm. used to take 12 years, we're going to continue living on that curve. Um, it's going to be a really different world. I don't know if I'm going to be around to see the, the 2060 part. Um, but, you know, I don't wake up. I mean, you know, do I worry about the politics? Does it aggravate the device, not the politics, the divisiveness? I don't really care about the politics <laughs> other than it affects me personally. <laughs> uh, but, you know, just that division, just the, you know, the misinformation and all that stuff. I, I don't know if that's going to, I'm not sure that's going to go away, but we as human beings need, and, and employers need to learn to create environments that help people understand that we're somewhat not, we can't, put a barrier around them. We can't protect them. We can't put a bubble over them, but create environments that, that create a safe space that people can talk about, um, that they can also grow and thrive. That if I have an idea, I'm not afraid to inject it and being criticized. My boss isn't going to tell me that's a stupid idea. That's not the way that we always did it around here. Um, or yeah, good idea. Um, write that down and bring it up at the meeting next month. Mm. Uh, um, you know, let's talk about salary, you know, let's talk about my wages, about fairness, about equity, about opportunity. I'd like to take a class. Well, it's not in our budget this year. Um, organizations are going to have to create a culture that is much more responsive to the needs of people. And the needs of people aren't going to be only what relates to their, to their work, to their, because we don't have a nine to five anymore, but to the hours on your payroll. But if you don't help them have a better quality of life outside of work, they're not going to be really good employees. They're going to be stressed about something at work. And we're not talk, talking, you know, giving them a blank check so they can do whatever they want. But I, again, people have to have, feel safe to talk about their struggles, their, you know, their stress, um, things that are going right. What are the future ambitions? Um, again, being having the opportunity to contribute to the growth of the company, not just being uh, another number, you know, an ID number that gets paid. Uh, how do they feel that? And there's some, you know, there's companies that have done it really, really well. And there's companies that are 
most companies are really struggling. I, I did an interview just yesterday, and I don't know when it will be out, um, but, you know, New York is having um, it just, I think, Friday uh, this week, they are instituting their pay transparency law. And uh, and I was called and asked about what I think about. It. Is it good or bad? One is morally and and morally, I think it's it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, there should be no, you know, people's companies shouldn't have the right to say, well, if we put that out there, everybody isn't going to know what they get paid, and therefore we can't continue to discriminate against people. <laughs> That's <laughs> or, the underlying message, yeah. <laughs> If we do that, is like every every person that we've had that's been a good employee for the last twenty years is going to know that we're paying the the recent grad that just showed up today um, more than they get. Um, so we we don't want to do that, or we don't want to reveal that um, you know um, you know black women get paid so much less than than white men mm-hmm. um, for this doing the same job. Yeah. So we don't want that. Um, so morally, yeah, it, every it should be pay transparency. The problem with it is, isn't the law, isn't the regulation. It's, it's one is that they need a law <laughs> to do that. The other is the cultures aren't set up. I mean, all of a sudden is on Friday is that it's going to be required that people have to say, this is what we pay everybody for the same job. And somebody's going to say, I don't get that. I'm not getting paid that. Mm-hmm. And, and, but I, you know, so they changed the job title, you know, a little bit, but I'm still doing the same work that they do. Uh, and then also being able to compare it to other companies that they work at. Why am I being so, paid so much more, so much less uh, to be able to do that? Um, the cultural change that's going to that has to go along with pay transparency is going to be really, really bad news for the companies that have a horrible culture, mm-hmm. it's a toxic culture that it was very secretive. And and even to the point of, hey, we're advertising a job on Indeed and ZipRecruiter or wherever you, you put it. And we're not going to we don't want to put our our salary in there because we don't want people to know because we don't want to have to overpay them. We don't have, or we don't want our other employees to know what we're advertising that for. Uh, all that goes away. That's a culture change. That's not that's not how are they going to deal with the law, um, because there could there there could be good effects. If you are transparent, then it is shown that. Companies that have pay transparency are better at job that have higher engagement. They um, they have a better job experience. They actually have. There's a study that came out on I can't remember who where it was published, but or or who did it, but that there was a significant increase in productivity when there was and performance. Um, they had lesser um, issues with recruitment. They had higher retention rates. There were all these benefits of doing pay transparency. So there are proven benefits, but you have to have a culture that's receptive to that. And most companies don't. So we, we think about what the future of work is. And as soon as you say that, it's like, oh, we're going to work at home. We're going to work remote. We're going to work hybrid. And what's the job? To, what are the jobs going to be? We completely forget about the environment. You know, and and I, I talk a lot about blue ocean strategy, especially with organizational change. If people aren't familiar with that, you know, we everybody swims in the in the red ocean competing. So we either have to do something unique or charge less. Yeah, <laughs> because we're all or find you the blue ocean. Yeah, yeah, or find the blue ocean, which is blue because it's filled with opportunity. Um, but the the authors of that wrote an article, bef- um, which it's actually sitting on my desk because I, I refer to it all the time. Is that we Traditionally, companies have have shaped 
their strategy around the existing uh, structure that we live in. Like, here's the world we live in, so let's have a strategy. It's a given. Mm -hmm. We can't change the, the structure, the environment, the rules, the laws, the people. Um, we can't do anything about China, India. And so we're, we're going to shape a strategy. What they did flipped it. They said, have a strategy that creates the rules. Have a strategy that creates the structure. That's the title of it, if you want to look it mm -hmm. up. It's how strategy shapes structure. And it's time after time, people have done it. They say, we're, we're given this, and we, we may not have full reign, but we can we can mold the environment we, to our our strategy. But it takes a lot, and, and that's where it takes this adaptability. That's where it takes innovation. That's where it takes grit and resilience and growth mindset and, and mental flexibility. And then, you know, one, one of my a relatively new skill that, that people and, and organizations are going to need is the ability to let go, and we call it unlearning is that it's not only learning new things, but it's unlearning. It's step, if it's not working for you anymore, stop doing it. You know, it, it's it, it's sort of when I teach, I teach DISC, you know, D-I-S-C, mm -hmm. it's a behavioral tool, Myers-Briggs type thing. Yeah. And I always said, I always talk about that as a language. And if, if someone else doesn't stand, understand the language that you're speaking in, you know, well, I don't speak, I'm, I'm not bilingual. I don't speak a lot of languages. But it, but if somebody came up to me and was speaking Mandarin, if I talk louder and slower, it doesn't help. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sooner or later, you just you have to either you have to learn the language or stop doing things that just aren't effective, that make you feel that hey, I'm doing the. I'm, I'm trying harder. I'm running faster. I'm working longer. I'm, I'm at least doing something. Well, sometimes that doing something isn't helping you at all. And sometimes you just got to punt and you go, I just need to change my way. And it doesn't mean you have to throw, you know, throw everything out. And, and, you know, people say you wasted, how much money did you waste getting your dental degree? <laughs> Jeez. I mean, I hear it all the time. It's like, wow. I mean, that took a lot of courage walking. I, most interviews, you're you're different. Um, this is a different conversation. Most interviews, they go on and go, wow, I didn't know that. I mean, that took a lot of courage to walk away from all that investment and all that education you had. No, and you don't look at it that way, do you? Not at all. I just, it was like I made up my mind that I'm moving. And I remember one of my friends had told me, um, he said, no matter what you do, you'll be okay because you don't, you, you're not a dentist. I mean, it, it's what you do. It's how you made your money. It's what, how would you get paid? But you didn't. It didn't define you. I mean, you didn't. You, you didn't build your practice because you had the skills better than anybody else, and that's why people came. I had okay. I had. I feel I had above average skills, mm -hmm. but there were people that I knew. I knew dentists, and obviously you get to know, had much better hands, much better skills, much more motivation to do what they need to do. But I had an ethical obligation to do the absolute best I could learn the skills I had. And what I didn't know, I referred out. Mm -hmm. uh, but that wasn't all I did. I mean, I, I built my practice because I managed it well. I hired people. The, I, just th this week, I got a, a message on Facebook from an employee who hasn't worked for, for me since 1991. Hmm. And we've kept in contact, a lot of my employees and some patients have kept in contact with it. 
and she she had had owned a beauty salon for 25 years sold it and she was applying for a job and she wanted to know if i'd be her reference because i'm her last boss wow <laughs> <laughs> um you know so but to think that that was the impact that i had that that was what i did that had I could have been selling widgets. I could own the manufacturing plant. I could have been driving trucks. Um, that's what employers need to do is that there was a loyalty. There was a friendship. There was a support system um, that they could call me up years after they I stopped paying them and they were on, not under my employee, could reach out and felt safe to re ask for something, ask for help. Um, why can't employers do that while people are working for them. Mm -hmm. And that's that's ultimately what's missing. The future of work, the companies that are gonna survive are there. I mean, going back to the pay transparency, and that was what I told the reporter. I said, the companies that have a culture, have been working on that culture of transparency, psychological safety, support, looking not at just in employee satisfaction, but employee experience and, uh, you know, treating people like they were human beings, you know, putting the H, bar, H back in HR. Companies that were doing that, everybody's struggling with finding people, mm -hmm. but they're not struggling with turnover and they're not struggling with recruitment. It's harder, but they're still okay. They're still getting, they're getting people that want to work for a company like that. They don't have, they're not waiting 120 days to fill a position. Maybe they're only waiting 30 or 35 because people are still available. The companies that haven't done that or don't think that it's necessary to do that or, hey, we're so busy recruiting people, we can't work on these right now. We're a small business. I don't think they I don't think they have to worry about the future of work. <laughs> <laughs> the future is going to find them, I guess. It's found them. Jeez. It, it's found them. Um, so, uh, you know, I think there I, I, you know, again, somebody's going to be employed those 128 million people mm -hmm. <laughs> that we talked about earlier. Um, and you know, even like three days ago, it's like, oh my gosh, the, you know, you got to dump all your stocks and be out of all these tech companies. It's going away and whew, we're going to take a breather in technology. And then, you know, again, you, we said it's, we'll put a marker on it, February 1st. Um, I'll somehow all these stocks rebounded by like 10, <laughs> 20% today. Uh, somebody's invest, somebody sees that there's a future and like all the other cycles, um, you know, I remember, Remember, he said, boy, I hope you took all your money out of your retirement, you know, in March of 2020. And I didn't, you know, I didn't have a lot of cash sitting around, but every bit I had, I threw back in. Mm -hmm. I was like, this is coming back. I, I, I lived too many cycles where I pulled it out, you know, thinking that I can beat it and it's going to be safe. And you just sit on it and it comes back. And, and frankly, if it doesn't come back, we're in way worse shapes than i mean <laughs> then we're not going to be worried about the future of work we're exactly gonna be, well we're be worried about the future of humanity and yeah that'd be and, a much bigger uh, problem well you're right yeah. the stocks the stocks went on sale in 2020 so they did and i you know fortunately um i, I was fortunate i was in the right time and i learned my lessons the last all the last recessions because i always pulled it out and you go, well, it keeps going down and down. I got I to be safe. And then it went back up and, mm, you know, and, miss those gains. Yeah. Well, I have the benefit of being married to a financial advisor. So I just let <laughs> her push the buttons and and she understands yeah. that. But um, yeah, well, so, I'll tell you, Ira, this has been a fascinating conversation. I I didn't know 
90% about the things that you talked about, about yourself. It's fascinating, uh, especially your background as a dentist. But what I do appreciate is you have that insight. And I think for a lot of us, maybe we're just afraid to see what's around the corner. I get the sense for you that you're a little bit excited about what's coming around the corner. And for those who are listening today, um, take heed to what he talked about. Ira, how can the listeners reach out to you if they'd like to continue the conversation or read your books or find out what you're working on? How can they find you? Well, you, fortunately, you can probably just go into Google and type Ira Wolf or Ira S. Wolf, S is in Stephen. Uh, I will show up in a lot of places. Uh, my, my company website is Success performance solutions.com. I am um, on LinkedIn all the time. So I encourage everybody to, if you're on LinkedIn to go to LinkedIn and connect with me or follow me. And there's a newsletter that I produce out there. Uh, and then I also have my, uh, my podcast, which is geek skeezers, Googleization. We're, we're actually rebranding, relaunching this month. Uh, it's really exciting. We got some great, great guests coming up, including Mark Efron, uh, in a few weeks. So people are familiar with him. So he's going to be on, I think, in two weeks uh, or so. So a lot of different ways. So as simple as just type my name in the Google and I'll show up somewhere. Uh, or you can go to you know the company site, the podcast, LinkedIn. Appreciate it. Ira, thanks so much for spending the day with us and for sharing your perspectives. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Mac. Appreciate it very much. Well, thanks for taking the time to listen to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast. I hope you enjoy listening to these as much as I enjoy making them. I've learned so much from the guests we've had on the show over the past few years, and I hope that you will continue to listen to us regularly. If you are a subscriber on any podcast app or channel, would you do us a favor and take a moment and leave us a review? We would really, really appreciate it. Also, if you have the time, check out all the offerings we have on our website, which is thebossbuilders.com. We have every other month a Sherm Credit webinar that we present as well as a ton of other events, not to mention our Art of the Great Boss and Art of Being a Great Teammate programs. More information on that site today. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Oh, by the way, you may want to unbuckle that seatbelt. I think we just arrived at the gate. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast. We hope you found something today that will relieve your stress, feed your soul, and pump you up to face another day. At Boss Builders, we want to let you know that we appreciate the hard work you do every day as an HR professional. And as a reminder, always make sure to adjust your own oxygen mask before attempting to help those around you. Be well. <laughs>